Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Bob Bryce, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I'm especially excited today to start a new series called Refocus, where we're going to take the next four weeks and work our way through at least some of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, if you don't already know this, Paul wrote many letters to many different churches. Some of these churches he had helped to start uh, and others he had never even been to and and never made it to. But all of his letters have different purposes and, and they address different issues that were going on at the church at the time. But because they all come from Paul, many of them have the same kinds of themes throughout them. And so the the letter that we're going to be taking a look at over the next four weeks is a letter to the Christians that are in Philippi. And it's essentially a letter that is uh, rooted in friendship and encouragement. Paul really cared for this congregation. And this was this was a congregation that he had started at least 10 or maybe 11 years prior to the writing of this letter. But they hadn't seen him in a long time. And they had heard, they had got word that that Paul was under arrest and being held in prison. Most likely, we don't know exactly for sure, but most likely he was being held in prison in Rome, awaiting trial uh, in front of Caesar. And so at the time, if you were in prison, that didn't mean that you didn't have to also take care of yourself. You were still responsible for meeting your daily needs. So if someone didn't bring you food or money or, or, or give you necessities for life, you, you would just simply starve to death. And uh, then, of course, the problem was solved. No, they kept the prison population real low that way. But the word had gotten to the church in Philippi that Paul was in prison. And so they immediately sent this guy named, say this with me, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. They sent this guy, Epaphroditus, to deliver necessities and money to Paul and to just kind of, you know, do a wellness check, check in on him and see how he was holding up. And so when Epaphroditus comes back from this special delivery, that's when he brings along this this letter that we know as the book of Philippians. And so, again, friendship, encouragement, it's generally a a warm and positive letter, and it it has this, this common thread all throughout it of joy. It's woven all throughout the entire thing. Of course, it sounds very strange to us that it would be about joy, because how can the letter be joyful when we just said that Paul is writing it while he's in prison. It doesn't doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to us. But part of our challenge here is to realize and keep in mind that that joy and happiness are not exactly the same thing. This, This... I think the easiest way to describe this is this is an ongoing conversation I have with my mother. You know, her kind of her biggest and most uh, favorite question she asks me is, are you happy? And of course, then I usually say something like, uh, well, well, I'm not particularly happy with how things are going right at the moment. But but that doesn't mean that I'm not also full of joy. This drives her absolutely crazy because it sounds like it's a contradiction, Right. And so to be clear, I'm not saying that joy and happiness are like totally unrelated either. They they are related. And so we we can't really 
pull them far enough apart to make a crystal clear distinction between the two. But we, in, at least in a general sense, we can say that happiness tends to be more of a surface level, a response or a reaction to what's going on in our lives. In other words, happiness largely depends on what's happening. Happiness depends on what's happening. But joy, however, at least from a biblical perspective, is something that we can experience regardless of what is happening, regardless of our circumstances, because the source of joy is entirely different. And because of that, the truth is that joy defies our circumstances. Joy defies our circumstances, good or bad. Because the essence of true joy, biblical joy, is, is not found in or dependent upon our circumstances at all. It comes from somewhere else entirely. You may even remember that the Apostle Paul lists joy as one of the nine fruits of the Spirit that we talked in the spring uh, about. Does anybody remember those? We got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so this idea that it's a fruit of the Spirit means that true joy is something that is made possible only by the power of the Holy Spirit of God working in and through us. And so in other words, joy is a gift. It's a gift that comes from God rather than, you know, something that we can just sort of produce in ourselves uh, at will or, or on command whenever we want to. And so when we get this right, when we understand this, and when we start to see how it is that Paul is full of joy while he's shackled in prison, and also how we can be full of joy and defiance of our circumstances as well, it's going to take us exploring together how we get there. How does this happen? But before we look into it more closely, let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us together, even though it still feels like we're far apart. In this time of social distancing, Lord, we know that you are ever close to us. Closer than our very breath and the heart beating in our chests. We just ask, Lord, that right now that you come by the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us, to give us new life, and to send us on our way from here, wherever we go, with not only the knowledge, but the feeling of joy, like only you can provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's be real with each other for a moment. Many times in life, things don't work out like we'd hoped or we'd planned, right? I don't know about you, but uh, there have been some really interesting um, twists and turns along my life's journey. I'm sure for, for you as well. Some surprises were good. Some surprises, well, not so much. And sometimes those twists and turns were kind of good and bad at the same time, like, like right now right now for me in this moment. Of all things I dreamed 
about my life. I never once, not even one time, imagined being a pastor in the middle of a global pandemic, serving at a church that's uh, trying to overcome financial pressures and working through a lead pastor change. That was not something I saw coming, but nevertheless, here we are. Well, the Apostle Paul always wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome as a preacher, pastor, preacher. He wanted to go and he wanted to be effective in the ministry that could be happening, that he wanted to be help, help start in Rome. And with good reason, because there is no doubt that Paul was the greatest evangelist of all time. He, he could walk into any city or, or any town, big or small, and just sort of set up shop. And he could, he could argue and he could debate with anybody that would want to talk to him. And, and he could convince them, not by his own power, but by the power of the gospel, that the church was something that they should support. And so he would go from place to place and he would plant churches. And now not to give you the impression that that was easy. It, it, of course, it's never easy. But Paul was undeterred by the many hardships and the challenges that he faced when, you know, the welcome wagon came in the form of beatings and attempted stonings and all that kind of stuff. But he was clear about what his mission was, and that was to spread the gospel as far as he could. And so Rome was kind of the crown jewel of that goal. He wanted to go very badly, and he eventually did get to Rome, but not as a preacher, as a prisoner. Didn't make it as a preacher. He was brought there as a prisoner, and that, that certainly wasn't his plan. But that's where he found himself. What about you? When you think of your life, what detours have you experienced along your way that have caused you to have to change your plans. Maybe your plans were changed for you. It, it just, it rarely goes the way that we think it's going to go, right? And so the point is that no matter who we are and what we plan for, we all face unplanned and unscheduled difficulties and times of trouble all throughout our lives. Matter of fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should expect more trouble not less. John 16, says, in this world, you will have trouble. That is from Jesus. So we should expect it. And while we don't choose it or want it, it does seem to choose us, doesn't it? But the choice we do have is how do we respond to it? How do we respond to it? Again, not through our own power, but by asking God to refocus our eyes and to, to refocus our hearts and our minds in ways that reveal God's wisdom in place of the world's wisdom. How do we get to God's wisdom? And to, to give us joy in defiance of our difficult circumstances. That's only possible through God. And so this is exactly what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. But for today, I just want to take a look specifically at chapter 1 and verses 12 to 26. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Now, this, this entire letter, like we said at the beginning, is so rich and there's so much we could talk about. But I want to walk through this specific section today because 
I believe it really helps give us some needed perspective in the midst of the troubles and the challenges that we're facing in our world right, right now, right in this moment, even in our own country in particular. So starting at verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So even though Paul's plans have been completely derailed and disrupted, and even though he's in prison, amazingly, the gospel is spreading faster than it ever was before. Think about that for a minute. He says it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard why he's locked up. Because he's in prison for Christ. Well, how is that message getting out? How, how is it spreading? Well, in this kind of house arrest, this kind of prison system, prisoners didn't wear, you know, like an ankle bracelet where they kind of just, you know, were able to be tracked digitally or anything like that. They were, they were chained to another person. They were chained to another human being, that person being a palace guard. So Paul was chained to a palace guard 24 hours a day. Talk about a captive audience. Now, it doesn't say that as one guard after another was taking their turn chained to Paul, that they all, you know, became followers of Jesus or, or really that any of them did. But the message itself was spreading while Paul was contained. And the gospel itself, the gospel message is what Paul was focused on above everything else. He's, he's far less concerned with his own circumstances. And instead, in the midst of those circumstances, he's marveling at how God is continuing to work through his imprisonment to reach more and more people in spite of his circumstances. And so in that way, Paul continues to preach. He continues to preach. And he's having even a greater impact but it's certainly not in the way he planned or expected or wanted. And that's the paradox of the gospel itself. In our weakness, God shows his strength. In our weakness, that's when God shows his strength. And that's exactly the opposite of the way that the world works, isn't it? I mean, in the world, the the powerful prey on the weak, the, the ones who have power seek more and more power. It's, it's basically dog eat dog, survival of the fittest. And then right in the middle of all of that, the gospel breaks in and totally upends and overthrows the wisdom of the world and says, not so fast. The story is not over yet. In these great moments that, that often appear to be monumental defeats, God shows his strength. Even when we don't see it or understand it at first. Because let's be honest, Jesus' disciples had no clue 
what was going on. When, when their leader was arrested and, and beaten and tortured and eventually crucified and died. Now, Jesus had explained this or tried to explain this to the disciples all along the way. But no matter how many times he tried, they, they just didn't get it. They didn't see it coming. That wasn't their plan. And so what appeared in that case to be the greatest defeat in all of human history. His disciples understandably fled in fear. They fled. They locked themselves away. They, they hid from the religious authorities. They, they wondered, how could this have happened? After all, they thought, well, the Messiah is supposed to come and conquer. Certainly not show up and give himself up. That doesn't make any sense. So they were afraid. And they were feeling very defeated. And they were very weak. And yet, in this circumstance, we've got Paul's situation, which, you know, is several years after. And in verse 14, look what it says. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. But how can this be? <laughs> Why weren't they also running and hiding in fear? Well, because they knew what Jesus' disciples didn't know yet. The story wasn't over. Turns out Jesus wasn't all that good at being dead and defeated. It wasn't until the third day that Jesus' followers realized for the first time, oh, wait a minute, this is not the end. This is a new beginning because, of course, it turned out that all of what Jesus had been promising had ultimately been fulfilled. He was the fulfillment of those promises. He, he willingly took the sins of the world upon himself and put them to death once and for all, for you and for me and for them. And then just for a victory lap, he put death itself to death. So we no longer have to worry. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important victory in all of human history. We need to remember that, especially now in this particular current time, in this climate, in our country. The most important victory of all is the resurrection of Jesus. And so the brothers and sisters in Paul's congregation were bold and courageous because they already knew this part of the story. They knew the story wasn't over. They were living with a post-resurrection perspective. They knew that God works in and through our weakness and through our struggles and through our trials in ways that turn the logic of the world completely upside down. And they knew this not just because they had heard the story about Jesus and heard about the resurrection, but because they had been given the gift and the power and the perspective of the Holy Spirit to understand that the gospel is just simply too powerful to ever, ever be contained inside the walls of a prison or to be somehow invalidated by the circumstances of the world. But that reality is not just something that's true for them. It's true 
for us too, right now. It's true for you and I too, as followers of Jesus. We, like Paul's people, have a different perspective because Paul's people were post-resurrection people. And that's what we are. Paul's people were post-resurrection people, and so are we as followers of Jesus. It's time we ask ourselves, are we truly, truly living in the light of the resurrection? Do we understand that the resurrection means that everything is different? Are we, are we also bold and confident and committed to spreading the gospel regardless of our circumstances? Or do we find ourselves more often cowering in fear? Are we afraid? Are we letting our circumstances control how we feel? Or are we standing firm in faith, knowing that it's the joy of the Lord that gives us the strength to carry on? We do not do this ourselves. We cannot produce this ourselves. This comes from God who gives it to us. And so we have to ask ourselves, are, are, are we dead drunk with, with self-loathing? Or are we drawing living water from the well who is Jesus? Because as his followers, as his messengers of hope, people should see the power of the resurrection reflected in who we are and how we live, regardless of our circumstances, good, bad, or otherwise. In defiance of our circumstances, they should see us living with resurrection power. Of course, this is hard. And yes, in this life, we will continue to have trouble and it comes in many forms. But when we know and when we trust that the source of joy, true joy, is Jesus himself, and we fix our eyes upon him above all else, then we're able to better deal with the trouble that comes our way, the trouble that tries to to throw us off, the trouble that tries to get us to walk away from faith. Let's be honest, sometimes trouble comes in dealing with other people, right? Paul was no stranger to this either. Take a look at verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. It's interesting, isn't it? And he goes on and says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So what's going on here is that there are two different groups of people, two different groups of people that Paul identifies, two groups of people that, that see the same thing two entirely different ways, two groups of people that have a different approach to doing the same thing. Does this all remotely sound like a similar situation we find ourselves in in this country right now? Well, even, those, even though Paul's situation is, is not the same thing as what we're dealing with, we can learn some things about what Paul is teaching us in terms of how we deal with conflict, 
how we deal with getting along with other people. But first, I just want you to take a moment, just take a moment and think back to your earliest memories of a disagreement that you had with, with a friend or, or, or maybe a sibling. The younger, the better. When you think about it, when you remember that disagreement and the circumstances around that, was it something simple like, who was here first, or it's my turn, or you know, you're it, or whatever? Or was it something much bigger, like, well, my, my juice glass is cooler than your juice glass? For me, my, my best friend Matt and I, we both had a particular G.I. Joe action figure, and they looked almost identical, except one of them had black boots and the other had brown boots. And of course, we both laid claim to the one that had black boots, because black boots are cooler. And so each of us were absolutely certain that that one was ours. And so, of course, this led to a, a tumultuous falling out. It was, it was a fracture that was, was so massive that we even decided, well, we, gotta, we have to take a break from one another. And so we, had, we took a break for all of maybe, I don't know, 30 minutes. But how did things end up for you? How, how long did it take for you to resolve whatever that issue was that you thought of? For us, we finally decided, well, guess what? We really don't know for sure whose guy has the black boots. And so we just agreed that we would take turns playing with each one. And then we'd alternate who got to keep which one until we played together again the next time. Problem solved. Relationship preserved because we had a goal that was bigger than just the boots. The goal was that we wanted to play together. Well, have you noticed that the older we get, the harder it becomes for us to resolve our disagreements? Why is that? Why does it become so much more difficult? And before you say, okay, Bob, but you know, you're talking about a totally different scale of problems. Our problems are much bigger than action figures. We're arguing over really, really important things, not something silly like the color of somebody's boots. Oh, really? Really? I almost don't need to say anything. The reality is, when you think about the vitriol and the hate and the meltdowns over face masks, when you really stop and think about it, then I guess we don't really have a choice but to admit, well, I, I guess we are willing to go to war over G.I. Joe's boots after all. But at what cost? What is the cost? Now, I'm specifically talking to Christians here, followers of Christ. I don't care whether you're pro-mask or anti-mask. I really don't. But what I want to ask is, what is the cost to the gospel for us to continue arguing over it? What is the cost to the gospel? Because the reality is, inescapable reality, is that people's eternal destiny hangs in the balance of who is in their heart, not what is hanging from their ears and covering their face. Are we concerned about what God is concerned about? This is what Paul himself understands very well. And of course, he's not talking about masks or boots. He's talking about 
two groups of people with different approaches, different motives, and different purposes. But he understands something that we seem to have a really hard time grasping these days. He remembers what the primary goal is and who, who the primary goal is. The goal is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and to do it regardless of our specific circumstances. Take a look at verse 18 again. I think it's just so powerful. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul is focused on the big thing instead of being lost endlessly arguing over the wrong things. He rejoices because Christ is preached, period. Not how or why or when. He's focused on what really, what really, truly, finally matters most. I don't know about you, but I find that I often need God to help me refocus, to, to reset my eyes on truly what matters, what, what matters and who I trust and looking to God and trusting the Lord above everything else. I need to refocus regularly, regardless of my circumstances or the circumstances of the world. I continue to pray that God lead and guide me and, and that he give me a sense of what is and is not vital for his glory. And so he can accomplish his will, not my own that I may understand more and more about what it means to live with joy that defies my circumstances. Joy defies our circumstances. Paul goes on to say that, that he believes God has his ultimate good in mind in the midst of all this and through all this. And so we continue in the second part of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. That word deliverance there is actually better translated as my salvation. Salvation. So he's saying that what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between these two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And so this is what I want to end with today. Paul goes one step further. 
beyond just thinking about his circumstances, beyond just considering that his circumstances have actually led to the advancement of the gospel, he now says that in the midst of those less than ideal circumstances, they themselves, these challenges that he's facing, are what is leading him into salvation leading him into salvation. Now that's really, when you think about it, that is quite a statement. He's not saying that his deliverance or his salvation is dependent on whether or not he gets out of jail or, or even whether or not he's executed, he lives or dies. But he says that to live is Christ. To live is Christ. To live as Christ wraps up Paul's entire understanding, of the meaning and the purpose of life. It's what makes life worth living, regardless of his circumstances. He believes and he lives out this faith by putting Christ as his very, very top priority. And then right below that is a close second. You'll notice that he's prioritizing serving other people for the sake of Christ. Christ comes first, serving others for the sake of Christ comes second. Sounds familiar. Like just what Jesus says, to love others as he has loved us. And so his love, Paul's love, and his care for others is evident just even in the way he talks about wanting to continue to be with people, not for, for Paul's good, but for their benefit. To help them, to teach them, and to continue to lead them to Christ over and over again in and through whatever situations they face, whatever circumstances they find themselves in. In Christ is where Paul finds absolutely everything he needs to make his life worth living. And so today, the question for you is what makes your life worth living? What is the goal or your understanding of the meaning of your life? Are you defining your purpose or your value by, by what is temporary or by what is eternal? In other words, where are you getting your sense of value and, and your sense of identity? Is it in your job or is it wrapped up so tightly in what you do? Is it found in, in being powerful or, or, or right all the time and winning arguments and getting your way? Is it based on your performance and, and kind of how you measure up or believe you measure up to others? Or are you finding your value in Jesus Christ alone? Can you say that to live is Christ? This is important because one way leads to a very volatile and temporary feeling of happiness that is dependent on our circumstances. And the other leads us into biblical, true joy that defies circumstances. When it's true for us, that to live is Christ, that's when we begin to understand how it is that joy
defies our circumstances. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you continue to give us gifts of joy in the midst of hardship, in the midst of uncertainty and struggle. You continue to show up in powerful and mighty ways, ways that defy our expectations. You continue to point people to yourself. And Lord, we ask that you make us your instruments, that we point people to you, that we make you the priority, that we understand what it means to truly say that to live is Christ. And that we do this in the middle of an extremely divided country with all different kinds of problems. Lord, I pray for our country this week as we have an election. We're going to have a lot of people that are going to be rejoicing. We're going to have a lot of people that are going to be upset based on whatever the outcome ultimately is. And Lord, I just want to say that we're trusting you to keep reminding us that no matter who's in the White House, you are on the throne. We can turn to you and trust you. So Lord, we ask that you fill us with your spirit. You give us the courage and the strength and the joy to walk in your ways and follow after you now, today, and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.